Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And we have a new guest today, uh, our friend Simon Weber. Simon is a managing director at Duff & Phelps a firm that we have used uh, for valuation services in many cases over the years. Simon provides global transfer pricing advice to Fortune 500 companies and startup businesses, especially in Silicon Valley, where he's sitting today. Mm. Among other things, Simon advises clients on cost sharing agreements, intangibles transfers, transfer pricing planning and documentation, controversy, and advanced pricing agreements. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thanks very much, Steve, for the intro. Uh, I didn't know I'd done so much. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) You're extremely accomplished. We only have the best on our podcast. So so today we invited Simon on to talk about transfer pricing valuation as viewed through the lens of OECD initiatives, both sort of BEPS 1.0 and and, uh, the shift to focus on, on DEMPI functions and with the with the eye towards anticipating what might happen uh, with pillar one and pillar two under sort of BEPS 2.0. As we always like to say, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs or in this case, the latest OECD reports in front of you. And as always, a disclaimer, tax break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So, Simon, uh, if, you, if you could, I'd like to start out by uh, you telling us a little bit about how BEPS 1.0 uh, affected and continues to affect today uh, your, your practice in valuing intangibles for purposes of, of transfer pricing? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And it, 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 it's obviously impacted what we do a lot. Um, you know, the, the purpose of BEPS 1.0 was really to try and bring uh, a lot of untaxed intangible value onshore to be taxed, um, as you know. Uh, but it also sort of changed how much you need to pay for uh, intangibles when you move them, uh, and then who should earn those intangible profits as they go forward. And so, so what we saw over the last few years is a lot of onshoring of otherwise sort of offshore intangibles uh, and valuations around that, uh, but also work around, you know, making sure that uh, new owners or existing owners of, uh, of intangible rights and profits sort of had sufficient DEMPI functions. And I think that uh, when we look at that part of it, I think that's you know, a- another area that's still ongoing. We, we really don't know the views of many you know, governments and, and countries around what constitutes you know, the DEMPI rules with regards to sort of profit attribution. Um, and ha- you know, really how much, how much DEMPI do you need right, to, to be able to sustain your sort of legal positions? And I think that you know, we do see differences around the world and positions around the world in that, that respect. I mean, I think the US, it would be fair to say, um, still values legal rights uh, and, and will sort of ground on the legal ownership of, uh, of intangibles as long as there's sufficient DEMPI functions. And I think the, you know, the regulations that were already there sort of had an economic substance and uh, tests that you could apply around that. 
um, you know, in foreign jurisdictions, you find that uh, that view may be different. And even between advisors, you find that differs. And, and there's now sort of a, a move that may suggest that, you know, having dispersed DEMPI functions may actually mean a dispersion of intangible profits. So I've seen things where there's been sort of profit splits applied, where there's been sort of, you know, fragmented DEMPI functions. And, and so sort of you get into this debate about, you know, how much is enough and, and what activities are more valuable than others. And uh, it, it gets a little bit more messy. And, and that then sort of moves into when you're moving IP, well, who, who should pay for what and how much should they pay? And so you get this, you get this sort of wide variety of different, uh, different outcomes that, that may be applicable. I mean, um, you know, we do a lot of uh, probably probably 80 percent of my work is intangible valuation. And I see a lot of different um, you know, rules being applied or thoughts being applied around it. And you sort of have to be adaptable uh, in how you approach it. And could you that was, I, that's interesting, the notion that having dispersed DEMPI functions leads to a a division of the, the or, or or a greater allocation across jurisdictions for for in, income to intangibles. Is that is that the idea? I think that's the idea. I'm I, I'm not a subscriber to that view. I think I'm more on the U.S. side, where you know if you've got sufficient functions, you do it. But I, I've seen analysis that that look at uh, you know activities and DEMPI functions and basically I think if you've, uh, if you've done any supply chain stuff there's I think got a RACI analysis and I forget what the those acronyms uh, are but basically it looks at decision making um, around the intangible you know um, development enhancement maintenance protection and exploitation uh, and, and attributes value uh, across the people that are making those decisions or the, uh, the, the systems and processes that are put in place around it. And so, you know, if you take that view, you know, you could end up with IP value being dispersed in a number of different uh, cases. The OECD provides very little guidance around it. Really, it just says that if you don't have DEMPI functions, then you get nothing. nothing. But, a, a risk <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't but tell a, you if you range. have some, how much you get. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And yeah. so I think, you know, planners take different views on it. And I think companies may take different views on it. Some some companies are going to have dispersed um, arrangements, right? There's going to be sort of, you know, central decisions and local decisions. And that may actually naturally mean that there's some sort of dispersion of, of IP profits uh, within the organization. Right. So it really depends on your facts and circumstances, which is the classic get out thing. So for, so for the record, uh, RACI stands for Responsible, Accountable, Consulted, and Informed. So the varying levels of, of um, you know, I guess, independence that one might have with respect to these intangibles and decisions about where they're placed. To develop. But do you have to have all four? Well, no, it's kind of a descending order of, you know, uh, okay. if, you're, if you're informed, you, you know you're at the bottom of the totem pole because... Yeah the decision has already been made. Um, so it's sort of a hierarchy in deciding whether your DEMPI functions are sufficient. Well, whether yeah, you, yeah, whether they're sufficient in terms, whether you have them, but then I guess to Simon's point, when they're, they're dispersed, kind of assigning a degree of significance across the value chain. Um, when you're trying to yeah, determine you can, you can end up with a notional profit split that yeah. way right it's, yeah. it's not really a financial profit split it's more of an activity-based profit split right. obviously determinant on you know somebody's opinion about you know how much value a particular activity decision or 
piece of information um, is is worth. And right. uh, so, you know, I've, I find though personally, I find those analyses interesting because I think they give you some insights into how things work. I find it less convincing from a valuation perspective. And I think you need sort of you're always better to, to look at other aspects as well as the legal part of it, uh, the, the equation as well. So right. um, I, I tend to use these things as a as sort of a uh, an indicator of, of, you know, strength of positions rather than an absolute. <laughs> right. So it's kind of a back of the envelope analysis of whether you're going in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Where, where, it, where whether it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, a good way to, to use them, but I've seen them used, you know, more proactively as the sort of the primary method as well, which is, I find interesting. So, it's so there's, there's a variety. <laughs> of things out there. So pillar one has been out, I guess, for, a year now, right, Lauren? Well, like in terms of at least the, the report, of the, yeah. re, the, well, the, the blueprint. Some meat on its bones only recently. So there's right. been a lot of um, talk about it, but the actual reports with, with great detail came out um, in October this year. So not, well, there, yeah, were, we, there were there were leaked leak sets that came out in August. Right. Um, right. And then the official came out in October. But before then, it was really more of a, a concept an idea um, about you know, generating what some might view as excess profits in, a cer- in certain markets without having a physical presence necessarily. And what started as an idea about digital companies and, and the way that they operate in certain markets has really kind of morphed and expanded um, to encompass more than just digital companies writ large. It's um, number one. So it was number one on the BEPS list of exactly. things to do, right, in 2014. Yeah. I can't believe well, all that. It's, it's, <laughs> Six it, years it, old. It is, yeah. It's a continuation of a concept. And it's really, you know, of course, new ideas about profit allocation and nexus, jurisdictional nexus. But I also think of it kind of as an expansion of what an intangible is. And, you know, BEPS 1.0, we're thinking about intangibles and, and looking at DIMPY functions and where value is generated. Mm. And now we're saying that you're generating value just by virtue of the fact that you're able to penetrate a market without physically being present and, and trying to essentially treat those excess returns or, or residual profits as something that needs to be um, allocated among the various jurisdictions in which you're operating. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, source, source-based taxation for markets, right, basically. Right, right. Um, o- overlaying, overlaying the, the traditional transfer pricing, you know, functions, risks, and, yeah. and assets yeah. within an organization. It's sort of super the organization and giving some weight to the market. And, and you, could, you can see why, you know, countries would be interested in doing that. Well, um, and, yeah. The- uh, uh, I was just going to say, it's kind of a re-articulation of an old idea. You know, years ago, people were treating the market as the intangible and, and demanding additional returns under traditional transfer pricing um, methodologies, just by virtue of the fact that uh, companies were able to operate in their market. And given the size of the market and the, and the buying power and the scope that they should be um, attributing some additional or excess return to that market. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I started my career in Japan yeah. doing defense work there. And so that was the big thing with the pharma and medical device mm-hmm. companies. It's just this market's special and you, 
you know, you need to pay more because your pricing's higher and all the rest of it. And so it was interesting later on to see those same arguments, you know, come round in this, uh, the, the GlaxoSmithKline case, right, yep. in the US, yep. where, where the US were using those arguments. Yeah. And so, you know, what goes around comes around. And <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's old is new. Disco music's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> So what does that what what does that mean for from for from a valuation standpoint? I mean, does that sort of change the the fundamentals of the role of a of a valuation practice um, going forward? Or yeah, I think it it's it, it I, I, that is a really good question, and I'm not sure I have the answer for it because essentially, you know, pillar one and pillar two are meant to be overlays to the existing system. So. In, in my view, I think the intent is for the existing system to view, you know, the activities and contributions within an organization as driving the, that initial layer of, of taxation and transfer pricing. And I think that that will also, um, you know, drive the valuations that will, will occur. But, you know, obviously, when you're trying to overlay um, taxation on top of that for the markets, uh, you know, now assuming that BEPS has been successful in driving, you know, all, all, all profits onshore somewhere, so they're being taxed somewhere, then, you know, we're now going to get a situation of double taxation. And, and that's on an ongoing basis, uh, uh, you know, on, on an annual basis. And then, and then, as you say, you then get these issues where if you are moving intangibles around and those intangible values are sort of following legal substance and dempy substance, which is inherent within, you know, the transfer pricing world, but in, inherently not in the pillar one world, then I think you're going to start seeing sort of, you know, transactional double taxation issues that arise around, around that. And I think the pillar one proposals deal with it to some extent, some of it sort of, you know, gets wrapped into, things like purchase accounting and amortization of intangibles, but, you know, also it's missed in things like uh, non-amortization of goodwill, for example, which stays on the balance sheet unless it's impaired. And so, you know, that, that's one of the areas that I think we'll probably be commenting on, on the pillar one, which is just really to sort of note the fact that you may have quite large transactions that capture value within transfer pricing um, rules and regimes that actually sort of you know bleed into the amounts that are also taxed in in um, in in pillar one <clears throat> and possibly pillar two uh, that that would need an attribution or some form of recognition and those those values could be quite high depending on the definition of what was valued at the time which sort of goes back to bets 1.0 right. uh, and the expansion of the definition of intangibles to include things like you know potentially goodwill or other CPA concepts. And it seems like the the interaction between this sort of existing transfer pricing regimes that are in place and then this overlay of, you know, pillar one and possibly pillar two, a lot of the the devil in sort of reconciling those two layers is in, in the details and in this, I know for, for pillar one, right, there's this notion that we're going to have some dispute resolution mechanisms, but we kind of don't know what those will look like yet. Right. And and so the devil's in the details, we've got to sort of find out, figure out how those how those disputes will, will play out. And that's obviously something where um, valuation will be key in in, yeah, in sourcing, I think sourcing where tax was originally paid and how it was originally paid and, and 
you know, whether or not that needs to get reallocated or how it's taken into account. And I think the OECD sort of understand, I think, most of the issues of, of how this is going to work. And the trouble is, is that there's not enough specifics to see how much is really going to be in this overlap or margin. And so, you know, it, it will depend in pillar one, you have this sort of carve out, it's a residual profits concept, right? And then it's, it's only a portion of the, or a percentage of the residual that's going to get taxed um, as being sort of attributable to the market. And so if the distances between sort of, you know, transfer pricing, uh, routine returns, let's say, and, um, you know, which would draw, for transfer pricing would drive residuals. But if the distances there are reasonable and, you know, most routine returns would be, you know, captured within the carve out for similar ideas within pillar one, then there probably is not too much of an overlap. Um, and then if you've got sort of, you know, not too heavy an attribution of profit, remaining profit to the market, that will also put some distance between the regimes and, and make it a little bit smoother uh, around double taxation. But that's obviously not the intent of trying to tax those profits, right? So, right. so, so we'll have to see how it all comes out. I mean, the, the sort of numbers you saw in pillar one where they were saying, we don't know what the, the, the carve out is for, for routines yet uh, on pillar one. But if you looked at the percentages that were being put out there for the percentage of the markets, it was somewhere between 10 to 30% which that's not egregious depending on the contribution you think the market plays in a particular business or the market contribution to play in a particular business. So there seems to be some separation around yeah. that. Yeah, but it's supposed to be a modest portion of the residual. And I think in the examples of um, the pillar one blueprint, it's, you know, they assume a profit margin of 10% and anything in excess of that, 20% of the excess will be attributed to that market. And right. a lot of uh, companies are of the view that that is a more than modest uh, reallocation yeah. of profit. And so, yeah. you know, it all depends on the percentages. But as you say, decisions made two, three, four years ago roll into uh, these calculations today. So I see double taxation issues going forward, but also significant transition issues from an old regime to a new one whereby, you know, in the US 482 principles or traditional transfer pricing principles have not been abandoned for many other purposes. And, and how are we going to reconcile those? So. Yeah, well, someone's paid tax somewhere on, on the profits that are going to be taxed newly, right? And exactly. That's, that's the biggest concern. And, and there are, you know, I think that there's obviously going to be overlap uh, because the same profits will be have been taxed. And I, I'm not sure the double counting uh, adjustments or the, the, the safe harbor that they are going to capture all of that. And then there's rather convoluted mechanism for identifying who would who would actually have paid the tax under the transfer pricing regime, right. um, you know, with the, the paying entities and, and then a bunch of panels for tax authorities to figure that out <laughs> on whether or not you're going to get an exemption or a credit will affect timing. So I think, yeah, I, you know, the, the devil is in the details, but I, I do see a situation where there'll be quite um, a large advanced payment of cash taxes in advance of maybe getting some of those credits. Uh, that would be my yeah. concern around it well credits and then the credits have to be recognized where you would like to apply them right so we can't 
make somebody recognize foreign tax credits in a different jurisdiction. Um, so you have to hope that they, they'll be creditable where you're trying to apply them. And presumably that the sort of the effect of this will be the greatest where you have differences between uh, the country where you own the IP and puts a lot of emphasis on ownership and, and where the, it's, there's actually like a lot of market value to the IP in, in markets outside. Right. Yeah, someone's going to have to give that, that taxing right up and be willing to do so. so. I, I think it's interesting as well, there's, you know, when you're thinking about where is it sourced from, uh, intangibles have a long life in many respects, right? I mean, you know, I mean, maybe market intangibles don't, right? It might be the instant where, wherever that person is that gets served the ad if you were in sort of Google's world. Um, but sort of other technology intangibles may have lives that are much, much longer. And when you think about the way that uh, Pillar One's being structured, you know, based on sort of consolidated group financials or perhaps segment financials, there's going to be a lot of um, a subsidization between profitable and non-profitable markets. Uh, that's going to be an interesting, you know, uh, debate, I think, amongst tax authorities. Um, I suppose the one good thing for t companies is that they sort of know what they're going to pay. And it then becomes up to which countries where? are. Yeah. <laughs> where <laughs> well, they, becomes they, <laughs> the question. Well, they're going to pay. Where, yeah. where can they get it back? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they'll be right. And they'll be to a certain extent indifferent <laughs> so long as it doesn't change their effective tax rate. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that that would be appealing. But I think it comes down to the timing of, uh, of when you get those credits. So, I mean, anything that's an exemption is obviously going to be a lot better than than a credit system. Yeah. yeah so you know but how you administer all of that I don't, I don't know and especially since it seemed to be that everything was going to be by panel on the tax authority <laughs> side <laughs> so when you're looking at the number of companies that were captured right I think it was it seven eight eight thousand companies over 750 million in euro in in revenues and then if you applied the uh what they thought were the, the thresholds uh, yeah, yeah the thresholds it was like two and a half thousand or something like that it's a lot of work so for every, panel <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say, yeah. <laughs> hard yeah. enough to get a few people to agree on one <laughs> right right, right. Yeah. exactly but no that's yeah. an interesting point i think you know there's a presupposition that you're profitable in all of these markets but they're really it's not always the case. And there has been kind of a push to take into account not only losses and carry those forward, but also profit shortfalls. So, you know, yeah. we're not 100% in lost territory, but we're not making as much money as we think or we thought we would or that we might in the future, particularly if you're looking at markets where you're just kind of starting up. So, you know, you're operating at kind of a break even point and you know you will be, but that's part yeah. of the cost of, of, of getting established there. It really depends on the business, how it, it, it goes. I mean, you, you could sort of contrast something where you have a sort of a platform that works, that's sort of developed and works, say Google's sort of ad serve platforms or things like that, um, you know, and, and you know, the, the point being that incremental users and markets are, are literally marginal marginal cost to them to, to put on. But then you've got other uh, companies that may have to invest significantly in developing the market, you know, the Netflix of the, of the world and things like that, where, you know, they're trying to build market revenues, $10 a month per user a time, right? right and right. having to spend millions of dollars on content to make that Rights happen. And, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so, so I think it's, I think, 
the OECD seem to have done a good job of recognizing that, but you know, there's time, there's temporal distortions that are going to come through, right? And it's a balance between, you know, getting the simplicity they want to administer this, and you know, the 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 complexity that would would bring more equity. Right. And I think, you know, that's not something I think that's easy for tax authority, uh, sorry, uh, taxpayers to actually sort of opine on. Really, that's something that's a policy decision between governments to a large extent. So, yeah. um, and you see that throughout, right? I mean, you, you do see that throughout the, the pillar one proposals and even the pillar two proposals, that balancing act they're trying to do. And it'd be interesting to see where they go down deep and want the complexity and where they want the, where they want the simplicity. My sense is, is that, you know, the complexity probably needs to be at the sort of the credit end of it, who's gonna give up rather than at the, you know, how much you have to pay end. Um, but I think with some of the proposals like segmentation of, of financials, that, that there could be, you know, ways for companies to uh, at least alleviate some of the, those issues um, around sort of subsidized, significant subsidization issues. But it might mean changing what they actually disclose in their financial statements and thinking about that now. Right. If you think that this probably won't go into effect for three, four years, maybe now's the time to start thinking about whether or not you might want to have more segmentation in, in your finances. <laughs> if it can help you. Yeah, yeah, no, I do think, I think that's right. I, I, you want a blunt instrument in terms of kind of the rules themselves and where you do want the complexity is to avoid the double taxation. So mm. that, and it will be complex. I don't think that there's any way to have a, a simplified dispute resolution mechanism with these rules. No, I agree. If they're, yeah. you know, kind of, very generalized and, and meant to apply broadly and get to a rough estimate of what these profits are and where they need to be. Um, could you, could but, you elaborate on that, Simon? Could you elaborate on the, the, the notion that sort of segmentation of your financial results is, is something that would drive your ability to sort of <laughs> decide how much income effectively to have some, some leverage in deciding where your, where your income gets allocated? Um, yeah, so maybe you could give an example, right? So, um, you know, I'll pick on a company like Netflix because they actually disclose their foreign markets. And what you see over the years is that the U.S. market, uh, you know, was initially driven by sort of, you know, the mail in the DVD business. Uh, and then it then then it became an online business, and and that took a while to become profitable. But now it's super profitable, and we're all enjoying the benefits of that. But in the foreign markets, uh, what you've seen is significant losses over the years, and that's because it does take them a long time to actually develop those markets for them to become profitable. Right? You know, they have to they have to buy the rights to the content, and you know, actually you know create the content these days. Um, you know, for each of the markets that they serve. And yes, there's, there's market content that's used across markets, but those are quite significant costs compared to the revenue build that they have. And it might take them, if you look at the financials that they have, you know, it looks like there's probably five or six years before the foreign market segment, um, you know, uh, looks like it could get, could get profitable. And I forget, I haven't looked at it for a while, but it may not, still not be profitable given their sort of market expansion. And so, you know, when you're looking at that, that may be if you're looking to sort of segment out sort of foreign market, uh, uh, you know, contributions, that might be an appropriate segmentation to look at. Um, it's not at the same level 
as the as the pillar one proposals they start at profit after tax <laughs> so there's, there's a number of things that I don't, you know most companies segment down to operating profit at, at most um, but you know companies could look at, at look at that and whether or not disclosing you know more in financial information about market segments that they operate in and also geographies might help um, to you know move or, or allow them to, to use those as a basis for pillar one taxation as opposed to sort of the, the global worldwide um, income statement. And you know the OECD set out some conditions for whether or not they would require segmentation, right? As well as, so there, but there may be sort of opportunities for companies to steer that discussion as well if it can be shown that it's reliable. And then companies have to weigh the sort of the, the possible tax benefits of that segmentation against any sort of competitive concerns about providing more granular detail about their business in, in Absolutely. different countries. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and whether or not that would be acceptable, right, by the panel that's associated. <laughs> these panels, these panels, <laughs> the specter of the panels. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a great panel, <laughs> and we we uh, we we've really enjoyed having you on, Simon. Uh, Lauren, is there anything else we should? Well, we we didn't. Simon mentioned timing, and this would yes. give me a little bit of an opportunity to do my favorite thing that we do on okay. the podcast, which is prognosticate. Uh, <laughs> so, you know what what do we think about about the timing, and and how do I think? Personally, this is going to be a much longer runway than this aspirational July 2021 deadline that has been established. Um, but, you know, realistically, what do we think in terms of implementation and, and what should what should taxpayers be, be trying to think about in terms of, you know, when these rules are going to come online? Are they going to be staggered such that we worry about pillar one before pillar two um, and things like that? Oh, you want me to give an? Uh, uh, well, no, I have Simon, no you idea. You got to prognosticate. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I was hoping you'd do it. So. We'll watch the, just, <laughs> just hang on, hang on. I'm going to open the betting markets and we'll watch them move. As yeah, you give I, your you know, prediction. I, I, I put, I put good odds on DSTs coming first. Quite frankly, <laughs> um, enforcing okay. the enforcing yeah. the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I just think, I mean, it, it's very difficult, right? If you think. This process didn't start in 2014, right? Because basically it was tabled at that right, time. Right, pretty it, quickly, was, it right? was. It was so hard. It, it was hard to deal with. And so... Yeah, it was yeah, <laughs> too, too hard to deal with. But, but the one, you know, it was the elephant in the room. And uh, so I, I, think, I think as a new tax system, which this is, right? And I know pillar two is a little bit like more like guilty, but um, let's say p pillar, pillar one being a, a brand new tax system with a new international framework um, has come a long way. Uh, but I think there's just a long way still to go to really make it uh, work well. And I, and I think that that's an important consideration for the OECD. So in terms of timing, I, I think I would prefer to see them, if they're going to make go quickly on it, to, to assuage you know, DST advocates, then I would prefer to see them make sure that the, the, the elements of friction, the overlaps on the margins are as small as possible and to have success, have it be successful. 
Uh, and so maybe that means limiting and, uh, as you say, sort of staggering how, you know, the companies that deal with this and sort of sort of bring it in over time in a phased manner so the issues can be resolved. I think the worst thing that the OECD could do would rush into this and it become really quite a big mess for everybody uh, to deal with, you know, without the resources, double taxation. You could see this really sort of undermining, you know, what might be you know, the, the embryo of a different form of taxation. Right. Um, you know, may, maybe it is the embryo of formula apportionment that might work, that may reduce, you know, reduce all of the compliance costs that we've got. Right? It could. Lauren, Lauren visibly winced. I, know. I did. That's, I that's, thought we were going to get through the podcast without mentioning Without FA. calling it, calling it that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it isn't a, right now, right? But, but the mechanisms are very similar. They are. And so, you know, I mean, if you look, if, if you really sort of, think about the tax systems. Is anybody really happy with the tax system? I mean, if this was a business that wasn't taxed, it would be ripe for, for disruption. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not sure that, that what we're doing right now, adding two more or three more layers of tax is actually going to help matters. It might actually push us more closer to, to the implementation of some sort of more grand simplification. But, you know, this is you know, basically a, a, the OECD's grand experiment with these types of ideas. So we'll have to see how, how it goes. Um, I'm not I'm not going to say I ad, advocate for it, but I would say that if I was you know, prognosticating, <laughs> I would say five years to, to get it fully implemented and bedded in yeah. is probably realistic. Um, and I would hope that they, as I said, they do it in a staged manner and, and sort of feed it in and uh, they can change thresholds at that point. But for the world, I think it's important that this is successful because I think it's going to be hugely expensive. It's not for everybody. <laughs> it is going to be expensive. I agree. I think a much longer runway than what people are actually contemplating is is pre preferable. And they can make tweaks along the way if this happens in stages instead of just unleashing, you know, <laughs> a new system across it's the world a hundred and something tax authorities of varying degrees of, of uh, staffing and sophistication and all the other well, i'm sure that research. i'm sure the markets that benefit from this will be glad to to further put off their covid debt relief programs until <laughs> until this is in place <laughs> There's always there are always digital taxes. <laughs> well, I mean that right. That's that's what that's what fills the gap, right? Yep. That's what yep. that's what enters the void of, of print more money. Print more that money. That works. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Great. Well, Simon, it's it's been a, a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, for our listeners, uh, you can uh, always email us if you have any questions or want to suggest future top topics. The email address is podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks for coming on, Simon. Yeah, thank you very Thank much. you. Great to see you.